Today, we're going to do things a little differently. I'm going to talk divorce with Christina Hughes, Director of Alliance Family Law here in Canberra. Welcome to Love Canberra, a show about love, sex and relationships here in the heart of the nation. There are no two ways about it. Divorce sucks, but it doesn't have to be quite so terrible. Christina Hughes will tell us how. She also busts some misconceptions that I and maybe you might have about divorce. Plus, prenups. Are they unbreakable? And just how has working in family law affected the way Christina views the world and relationships? All that and more. Stay with us. One of the biggest things to happen to divorce in Australia was the Family Law Act 1975. Enacted under Gough Whitlam, this legislation introduced what's called the no-fault divorce. Here's Christina to explain what this means. It means that you don't have to prove anyone was at fault in wanting to end the marriage. You don't need to get proof that someone was having an affair or someone abandoned someone, um, which was the case before 1975. You basically just need to prove that you were separated for a year and then even if the other person doesn't agree to getting divorced, you can get a divorce. Oh, right. Okay. See, what you've just said there, that, that's really interesting because um, I did understand that one can lodge sole applications for divorce, but I always thought that those still needed to be signed by the other party in order for the application to be able to go into effect. No, so you can apply on your own and then there's just some really administrative formalities about serving the other person so that they know it's happening. But other than that, you don't need their permission or their consent or that they're happy about it. You just need to prove that they saw the documents. And there's a little procedural step about filing a sort of an affidavit of service. Mm. Okay, but the other party can still lodge a response to that divorce application in order to have that application, I think, voided. It's usually if someone says, "Oh, we were together, but then we reckon, you know, we we separated, then we reconciled, then we split up again." There might be some factual things about that which one person says are wrong, and that that needs to be corrected on the record because it might have impact on something later like um, you're hearing about property matters and if you happen to inherit some money when you say you were separated and the other person says we're together that can have an impact so if a person gets served with an application for divorce and they say that there's a mistake in it, it it's very important to sort of fix that mistake but other than that the divorce can still go ahead, it's just that they're responding to some facts saying it's wrong. Right, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'm finding that so interesting because what I've sort of tended to understand is that another party can be difficult and can hold up an application for divorce. So that's not really the case? No, I mean, people can play tricks to delay things, which is really annoying for the person who's trying to get the divorce and they can sort of hide you know, and not be served properly and it, it can be quite expensive to then prove you tried to serve them, you put a notice in a newspaper, you wrote to their mother with a copy of the divorce and you, you can take all these steps to try and get it over the line um, but at the end of the day it, it will happen, it's just there's a few tricks that lawyers know about how to make it happen. It can add some time and some cost but even if the other, person, the other person's not happy, you can get your divorce. 
We've all heard about the celebrities who've gotten a little excited or very drunk and tied the knot in a shotgun wedding only to file for divorce hours or days later. Under Australia's Family Law Act, one of the conditions of divorce is that you need to show that you've been separated for at least 12 months and one day. Now, this can be quite straightforward if one person has moved out and the couple never spoke again, but relationships are rarely that simple. Sometimes people have to continue living together because of financial reasons or for the sake of their children. I asked Christina how, in this sort of situation, a judge could be satisfied that just because two people have remained living together, they are by no means together as a couple. That actually comes up quite a lot now because it's very expensive to sort of split your household straight away. So generally it's a good idea if both people do an affidavit that says, you know, we've been living separately and apart and what they have to do is explain um, what they said to each other to make it clear the marriage was over, what the different sort of money arrangements were, like maybe from that date they set up separate bank accounts, you know, maybe one person says he slept in the, on the couch and the wife slept in the bedroom, um, they stopped socialising together, you know, maybe the husband stopped doing the wife's laundry, that sort of thing. So you just give some facts in an affidavit that describe how you started living, you know, separate life. Um, some court registries require an affidavit of a third party to corroborate all of that, which is hopefully something that wouldn't be pressed because a lot of people are very private about their lives and they're not going to necessarily explain that to a, a friend what's going on and so it's a bit old-fashioned to have to get a third party witness involved. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean it sounds like it, it sounds very logical of course but I mean relationships especially the dissolution of a relationship can be so messy and so you know you might have a couple decide that things aren't working and then they might attempt to go through counselling perhaps or um, it, it just strikes me that a relationship's breakup isn't always a straightforward process and they might not wind up separating their bank accounts um, for a while or you know the husband or the wife might sleep on the couch some nights and then they might return to the bedroom and yeah yeah it's very much a gray area because emotions are so complicated and it's not when people are going through it they don't sort of think of you know legal evidence gathering at the time you can't live your life like that um, and it's usually fairly straightforward. If both people are giving sworn evidence, then the court really has to take it at face value and not assume that they're kind of making it up. But the rule about being separated for a year is really strict, so the court doesn't want people to say, oh, look, right, the marriage is over tomorrow, let's pretend we've been separated. And, you know, so there's got to be some genuine um, basis for them saying they've been separated. Mm. So in relation to showing that they've been separated, that's because that goes to the heart of demonstrating that the marriage is irretrievably broken. Yes, so it's like a policy consideration that the government, you know, wants people to really be quite sure that it's all over and done with before taking that legal step of dissolving a legal union. In sum, while matters of property and children are entangled with the process of getting a divorce, it's not the case that a divorce application won't be approved until those matters have been sorted. 
I'm going to present a case study to you, an example. So if you've got a couple who've been married, say, for 10 years and they have children and a house, what are some of the other requirements they might need to fulfil in order to um, have their divorce granted? They'll need to put some information about their children onto the form and the reason that's asked for is not because the divorce registrar is going to make any parenting orders but there's a requirement that they prove to the court that the arrangements for the children are proper and that doesn't mean perfect and it doesn't mean they have to have finalised the parenting arrangements but they, they can't have some chaotic arrangement about kids and still get divorced so the court would say well that's not really proper so um, an example of where a divorce order wasn't granted was um, a couple where they, the father just came to the schoolyard and pulled the child out of school in order to spend the time with the child and then put it back in school and the mum had no idea. The court said that's not really a proper arrangement. But if, if you put on the form, we see the children um, you know, at least twice a week for about after school and a dinner and an overnight on Saturday, but we haven't finalised it and we're doing that separately, the court would think that that's, that's meeting the test of something's going on that's sort of regulating the kids' issue. Right, okay. So basically the court has to be satisfied that both parties will still continue to have a significant or meaningful relationship with the children or child. Um, that, that might be taking it just a bit far because okay. the divorce court isn't going to look into that um, to that level but they just want to know that that some arrangement is in place and it might be um, the children will be permanently with the mother because the father works overseas you know the arrangement might be that he flies to Australia once a year and they'll agree the time and all of that later that would be seen as enough so it's just to sort of say we have thought about it and, and something's in place ticking along in some way that's not totally chaotic. Mm, yeah. Okay so what about distribution of property or assets then? Is it the case that the two parties have to have made those arrangements and decided what's going to who as whom as part of the divorce? No so they're not really connected other than if you have your divorce order in place then you have just a year um, in which to file a, an application for a property claim so the only real impact is that it puts an artificial deadline on resolving property matters so in our experience we find that most people will talk about the property settlement first and then right at the end when they're signing documents they might throw in the divorce because we're all here together signing today and that way it sort of neatly finishes everything. Very few people get divorced first and then have that deadline kind of hanging over them um, but it has happened that we've had clients who got you know divorced 11 months and 25 days ago and then you have to in a big rush file your application for property, um, it will usually be granted after that year if you have joint assets or if it would be very unfair to just do nothing about property. So it's not, I mean, it's not a good idea to um, leave it till after the deadline, but in most cases, if it would be horribly unfair to just leave you without any assets, then you'll be able to apply for a property settlement after your divorce. Right. So can disputes over assets then hold up a divorce application from being approved? Um, not being approved, it just sort of helps with the deadlines of things. So when we're representing someone, we sort of just advise them to start the property ball rolling and then do the divorce sort of towards the end. But even if you had got your divorce and the year 
deadline was coming up, you could just file really an application that says, I don't really know anything about anything, but here's my application. You get stamped, you're in the system, and then you can amend it like two months later. So the main thing is sort of to get into the system and get a file number and, and you're all good. And the reason that can be important is if you're elderly and you get divorced and you want to file for property but you don't get around to it, um, if you die, no one can start a case, but if you get your case in and then later die, the executors of your, of your will can continue a family law case. So sometimes just getting a matter into court can be really important where people are elderly. All this talk about divorcing in one's latter years might sound a little odd, but in Australia, most divorces actually occur after 10 to 19 years of marriage. And in 2014, more than 4,000 marriages ended in divorce after 30 or more years of matrimony. So even though outstanding property matters won't hold up the granting of a divorce, it is still something that needs to be attended to. Here's Christina on how the court takes into account the contribution each person has made to the marriage when deciding how to divide assets. The word contribution, it covers um, a direct contribution of money but also indirect contribution to looking after an asset like if you did you know landscaping and gardening over the years you'll have made a contribution to the house value um, it can also be indirect um, sort of homemaker style contribution so a contribution towards the family's welfare and being a mum or dad so it really covers the field in terms of you putting in some effort to make the asset pool have some value or the family have got a benefit. An important change that came into effect in March 2009 was that de facto and same-sex couples were granted the same property rights as married couples. Christina and I talked about the implications of this change to the law. This came into um, being just when I was a fairly junior solicitor in family law and before that if you had a property claim as a de facto or um, same-sex couple you had to go to the Supreme Court of New South Wales at the time where I was working and so potentially you had two cases running you had a property case running in the Supreme Court of New South Wales which was open to the public could be reported by newspapers and potentially you might have also had a um, children's case running in the family court which was all you couldn't publish any Thing and very confidential so it was a really bad situation for people who were de facto's and same-sex they didn't have a lot of the privacy around that other married couples had so it's been really important to bring that into line um, and also the legislation for de facto's it wasn't as generous in terms of looking at someone's future needs so if you were a housewife had given up 20 years of her life with the de facto you might get it taken into consideration that you made a contribution to the property but the fact that you were now 58 and had no earning capacity left and so on might be completely um, just disregarded under that jurisdiction so it had a really unfair outcome for a lot of people. While the 2009 changes are no doubt a relief to many couples, it's also possible to see how it might strike fear into the hearts of some high net worth individuals. After all, 
What the change means is that it's no longer necessary for a couple to be married, for one to make a claim on the other's assets in the event of a breakup. And here's where the P word comes in. I guess the common word is prenups, so a binding financial agreement that you can enter into um, in a de facto relationship or even before a de facto relationship. So you can really protect yourself if you have a lot of assets and you want to make sure that you leave the relationship with those assets. Um, they're a really important tool to sort of plan for that. You may have heard all sorts of opinions about prenups. Some insist they're priceless, others say they're not worth the paper they're written on. Christina says they're not ironclad. But that's if, for example, the agreement was poorly constructed or if coercion was involved in the signing of it. There's a lot of formality around um, those agreements and if anything is not done properly, then you risk having it set aside. Having said that, there's been some really important cases that talk about to all intents and purposes, everyone wanted this agreement set aside, everyone based their whole life around it and there was some silly little formality that didn't get ticked off that the judge can still fix it, you know, in retrospect. But there's some things that are unfixable if they really impact someone's rights. For example, you know, if a husband has all the money and the potential wife is coming from Asia to marry him and it's sort of a threat, look, this marriage won't go ahead, you won't become an Australian citizen unless you sign this. and the wife may not speak English properly and not be advised what the impact of the agreement is and things like that, they're, they're really terrible mistakes and that agreement would be set aside. Yeah, so basically contracts that are entered into under duress um, are not valid. Yeah, and unconscionable conduct and if anyone sort of had such a, um, a position of bargaining strength and so forth. So those kind of agreements are more likely to get set aside and if someone got very little advice and that might be they saw their lawyer for five minutes and basically the lawyer witnessed the signature, that wouldn't be seen as really getting the right amount of advice. Mm. But say that the prenup was entered into by two consenting and informed parties and it was done according to the letter of the law, yeah. can it still be challenged? Um, it would be very hard, so nothing is preventing people entering into bad bargains. If they have all the facts in front of them and they've got the required legal advice, then it's unfortunately too bad 10 years later to say oh look I changed my mind I actually you know don't like the deal the deal is the deal yeah. right okay so in that circumstance provided that a prenup is done right yeah then it is hard to challenge a prenup that's right listeners do you have a story about first love loss infidelity or something else you'd like to share you can write to me at lovecamerapodcast at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Christina and I address some false assumptions people sometimes have about the divorce process and family law. We started by talking about child custody and the myth that parents will be granted equal time with their children. There's a presumption that the parents should share the responsibility, but that means having the right to get involved in the decision making. Um, and it follows from that, that the court should consider whether equal time is suitable. And if it is, it'll be ordered. But if it's not, it won't be ordered. And I think people don't really understand that it is very often not ordered because the parents are fighting so much that 50-50 with the kids would be just a nightmare. And so it's not going to be ordered, not because 
one parent is just the better parent, but because it's so unworkable that you can't put the children in the middle of that. Um, so that's a really big conception. And, and some people, they want to do the right thing and be fair. And so they say, let's do 50-50, and they're talking about two-year-olds, and all the social science says that's a disaster. You know, children need that kind of one home base and that stability, even if they have lots of time with the other parent, they need certain things that a 50-50 arrangement probably can't give them. Another misconception is that the outcome will be fair and that somehow putting your decision in the hands of a judge will mean that you get an outcome that to you feels fair and that's often not the case. So people, um, they sort of think that the courts have this unlimited time to hear their side of the story but what they don't really understand is that you go to court, you know, a very, very busy judge with very few resources might spend 10 minutes just giving the lawyers time to talk about the matter and then make a decision that they might feel is completely wrong and then they have this real grievance that the outcome wasn't fair. So we have to sort of educate them about what to expect when you're putting your matter in the, you know, in the hands of someone else to decide, you're really going to be happy with the outcome. Mm. But of course the parties don't, um, in, in most instances, the parties don't have to present to a court as such and, and is it the case that with a divorce application you can sort of come to a settlement without going to a court? Yeah, and, and that's really something that we strongly encourage because people can negotiate something privately so they could do it at home on the kitchen table just amongst themselves and then write it up and there's some paperwork to be filed and it will just be read in the office of the registry person, you know, registrar who's going to make the orders. So you don't have to go to court at all. Um, the, the misconception is that if you do go to court, someone is going to give you a lot of time and really take on board every single thing you want to tell the judge and that tends to not happen. If you've had bad experiences with lawyers or if you believe that all lawyers are only after your money, you may be surprised or perhaps assured by what you'll hear next. Most lawyers are the same. I think we, we work really, really hard to resolve matters without going to court because um, especially, I've been doing this for 10 years, you've, you've just seen how slow the process is, how expensive it is and how unhappy people usually are at the end of it. So we, we try and give really good advice a long time before people go to court to say the range is sort of you might get between 45 and 50 percent if you go to court it's going to take a year and it's going to cost you you know sixty thousand dollars so when we're crunching the numbers that's not really going to pay off for you so let's try and resolve it so you can get on with your life and you're better off and you're out of the whole system. Mm. So I feel like my next question has to do with some of what you've just said, but there's also a certain nuance to this as well. Collaborative divorce, I understand that that's what you specialise in. Can you explain what collaborative divorce is about? It's a form of resolving legal disputes that's been around for about 20 years, started in America by a family lawyer who said, look, you know, this is crazy, we're sort of arguing about these positions without really trying to understand where people are coming from them from sort of deep down and maybe if we learn that and have these discussions like rational human beings we can sort of do as much of a win-win situation as possible. Um, so the key elements to collaborative practice mean that 
all the meetings as much as possible will take place in a sort of a four-way setting so the two parties and the lawyers try to do all the work together it's all in the open and transparent the sharing of information you know there's no secret advice that's given everyone signs a contract that says we will not go to court but if everything breaks down then the lawyers can't represent the parties in court so it sort of keeps the focus on a positive outcome and it stops the lawyers saying well if you don't like what I'm doing I'll see you in court it just takes away that threat and it enables people then to really work through things so um, that's kind of the process and what I really love about it is that you give a lot of the power to the clients to actually tell us what's important to them so we try not to say well here's the legal advice and your entitlements are X and the position is this and now tell me your instructions and I'll convey them you know secretly to the other side we say right we want to hear from you what's really meaningful to you what are your fears what do you want to achieve and then we try and work with all of that um, and see if we can help everyone get to a place where they're sort of all okay with the outcome. Right, okay, so in terms of the four-way meetings then, because each party still has their own lawyer, does this mean that they don't still meet with their own lawyer individually to get independent advice outside of those four-way meetings? They'll meet the lawyers individually, but it will be more like a meeting to prepare for the next meeting, and it might be a meeting after the four-way to sort of debrief and say, you know, how, how did that go? Is there anything that you worried about that happened in the meeting? But it's not a meeting to give legal advice. It's sort of a meeting to say, this is us preparing for the four-way, and this is us sort of workshopping what happened and what needs to happen next and are you okay with it all so it's a different content to the lawyer client meetings and so I guess fairness is something that both parties would be much more interested in rather than trying to get as much as they can yeah I mean they might have different ideas of what's fair and what we try and explore with them as the lawyers is what does that mean to you so instead of someone saying oh I want 50 percent they might say, look, I feel that my parents made some big sacrifice and gave us a gift of 50000 to buy a house. I kind of want recognition for the fact that without that 50000 we wouldn't have bought the unit which is now tripled in value or whatever. So we, we try and explore, well, what would it take for you to feel you got recognition? Do you want the 50000 back? Do you want to get, you know, more out of the property pool to sort of account for the fact that you sort of put this investment in or you know what does it mean to you what's important to you mm. so yeah you sort of have to drill down into more deeper things and then you might find the other person says look that that sounds you know okay I sort of accept that we would never have got into the market without your parents help and I'm okay with that okay. so it sort of lets you have a conversation that is quite unique to those people and it will be a different conversation with a different couple. In light of how Christina's practice treats divorce through a collaborative approach, I thought that this might mean that she would see less conflict and fractiousness in her offices. But, Christina said, that isn't so. 
I think most people who come to collaboration are people who've been at the pointy end of litigation for a long time and you want to find a better way to solve things. So we're really fans of collaboration. But I still get regular clients who have very, very difficult matters or the spouse might have some sort of personality disorder or mental health issue or just be very stubborn about a position and then those people, they might need to litigate because collaboration is not really going to work. And so I do still have some really ugly matters, but I, I find the best way to deal with them is to not go down to that level myself. But I'm still always trying to settle matters and you know, recommend mediation with a family law barrister or recommend arbitration or recommend a round table because I still think going to court is like the... I call it the nuclear option, it's the worst option for anyone and even though the cases that go to court are the ones that pay the big bucks because they go on for two years, they're always terrible for the clients. So mm -hmm. even if I'm not collaborating, I'm always trying to help people get out quickly and cheaply. Why did you choose family law in the first place? Why did you enter into this particular profession? I came to it quite late. I'd worked in media law for a while and I was working for um, a company that did film production and film distribution and so on. And it just didn't have that element of me feeling I was making a difference to an individual. It was very much contract and money driven and I just, I, at the end of the day, I thought, you know, what am I really doing here? It just didn't have a meaningful component to it um, and with family law you you have an individual client and you sort of you're helping them you come in at a really hard time in their life and you're doing a really you know you'd like to think really professional job to sort of see them out the other end and it's really satisfying to sort of have them come in absolutely shattered or having been some abused spouse or treated like a doormat all their life and then just seeing them at the other end when they've sort of got a fair property settlement and they've got their self-confidence back and you, you sort of send them out into the world you know having kind of healed that that's really rewarding. I imagine that in your job you do see some of the worst of human behaviour even if it's just learning about it second hand so how has working in this area affected your outlook on the world and on relationships? I think it sort of helped me understand that it's never really something that, like separation and, and divorce and relationship breakup, it's never something that happens from one day to the next. When you hear people's stories, it always seems like it started off really well and then things went badly over a, a period of time and it, I'm very conscious now that you have to monitor sort of everything you do daily to make sure that you don't end up drifting along and having no idea that someone else is really unhappy. And when I look around at my colleagues, they, you know, 99% I would say are in extremely stable, very quiet marriages and relationships because you just don't want any drama in your personal life and you try and look after the people around you. And do you feel like, um, given all of your understanding of family law, that that's helped you to make wiser decisions in relation to relationships? I mean, definitely. It, um, it's ironic, but ever since I've been doing this work is exactly the amount of time that I've been with my present partner, so I'm sure it's had a positive impact. Mm. I wonder if um, your partner's worried that, you know, <laughs> if anything does, God forbid, go awry, that you kind of know the law much better than they do. I'm presuming they don't work in family law as well. <laughs> no, but um, 
he, he knows quite a lot about um, dealing with difficult clients that he sort of picked up from me and I bounce things off him but um, we have a prenup so that sort of means that we don't ever have to find ourselves before a judge which mm. is good. Love Canberra is written and produced by me, Ivana Ho. The intro and outro music is by Proletor. Some of the interstitial music is by the great Poddington Bear. On the next episode of Love Canberra... One of the reasons that I can take as much as I can take is because when my mother died, it hurt me so much that nothing is going to hurt me as much as that. That pain will never be replaced. And whether I just get flogged or beaten because of that, I want to get close to that pain, it's not happening. That's next time on Love, Canberra. Thanks for listening.